This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. A nationwide nursing shortage has been made worse by the pandemic. This week, nurses at Osceola County Regional Medical Centre in Kissimmee called on HCA, which runs the hospital, to hire more nurses. In some states, hospitals are offering signing bonuses and nursing programs like USF's College of Nursing are working to enrol more students in their programs to alleviate the shortage. Later in the program, we're going to hear from two nurses, one a registered nurse who's been in the profession for more than three decades and the other a new graduate. But first, let's talk to WMFE health reporter Abe Abariah about what's behind the shortage. Abe, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. You've been reporting for a year and a half now on how COVID-19 has affected the work of frontline healthcare workers. So what have nurses told you about how the pandemic has changed their working environment? I mean, in short, it's it's been a very difficult year, year and a half at this point. Uh, for a lot of these people, they're working in uh, really difficult conditions. And, you know, at the start of the pandemic, uh, there were issues where people were not going out and getting medical services and not going out to the doctor for regular screenings. And so you had this issue where, you know, the country was kind of put on lockdown. Florida was in lockdown. And then the hospitals were... Um, not as busy as, you know, we're, we're losing money uh, right in the beginning. And, but at the same time, they also had these flux of uh, very sick COVID-19 patients. And so, you know, in some places you saw where hospitals were actually offering contracts, offering to buy out older nurses to, to get them to retire so that they didn't have to, to pay, you know, as high a salary for someone versus a newer nurse. You saw um, the travel contracts get uh, very expensive, you know, where if you were a nurse, uh, particularly if you were an ICU level nurse who was willing to travel to one of the places in the U.S. that was hit the hardest, you know, in in New York, New Jersey, California, Mm -hmm. if you were willing to go there, you know, you could make $10,000 a week working insane amount of hours and obviously taking a toll on your your physical and and mental health uh, Mm -hmm. going through some of the most difficult nursing you're, you're probably ever going to do in your career, but it was an offer for a lot of money that a lot of people took up. And so you had this shift where the market got really difficult and you started seeing fewer nurses who were staying in nursing. People were getting out of it. People are retiring. People are moving to make more money. And as a result, you just have this point now where we're, where we're at in 2021, where it's you know, most places are having issues and the, and the issues are coming from a lack of nurses. Mm-hmm. And so, as you alluded to, the need for nurses was growing even before 2020. I mean, what are some of the reasons besides COVID for that uh, surging demand in nurses? There's sort of a, a pipeline problem where, you know, there's not enough people going into nursing and, you know, going to nursing school, getting into it. So the, the pipeline has a bit of a supply problem. Uh, but you also have a demand problem where the population in the U.S. is is getting older and is booming in in the sense that they're going to start needing even more healthcare services, and that's that problem is only going to continue to 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 get worse. So, you know, we're looking at coming to a point where you're going to be a million nurses short in a couple of years. You know, that that's mm-hmm. how bad the the shortage is going to be, and COVID has really sort of taken some of these ideas that have been floated around there on how to deal with not having enough nurses where you you maybe have an ICU level nurse who is managing a team of other nurses and and therefore is able to to care for more patients you know and and sort of flexing up in that way 
those sort of plans got put into place and got used in the last year. And so there's a lot of questions about the long-term impact um, and, and in any kind of changes to nursing as an industry that's going to come from COVID-19. Nursing, as you've said, Abe, it was a tough job before the pandemic. One of the nurses we're going to hear from later this hour talked about people leaving the profession. What are you hearing about the talent pool emptying out in the wake of COVID? It, it's a physically demanding job. It is a emotionally demanding job before there was a pandemic. And what's happened now is you've got You've had all of these people who are, you know, coming through that are very sick with COVID-19. And in a lot of these, a lot of times in the last year and a half, they have been dying alone. They have not been able to have their family there while they're going through this. In a lot of the cases, it's multiple people, multiple generations of the same family that is dying at the same time. And so this is just emotionally and from a mental health standpoint, just taking a massive impact. You know, the, the studies looking at and the surveys looking at the, the rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, problem drinking within nursing, within ICU nurses uh, in particular is staggering. And, you know, when you combine that with you know, you, you, you go to a hospital and you're working 12, 13 hours under these these very horrendous conditions and then you you come out and then you know you maybe stop to get dinner and you look around and people aren't wearing a mask because people don't view this as having as big of an impact as it does and so it it has a moral injury component to it as well where you you know you're you're dealing with all of this but you feel kind of helpless because all of the things that the broader country could be doing to maybe lessen some of the problems hasn't been happening. So the burnout problem is only going to get worse. And COVID-19 has definitely exacerbated that. Now, you reported last year, well, actually throughout the pandemic, Abe, on PPE shortages. uh, And you sort of alluded to that just now. But what impact does that have on staff retention if there isn't enough PPE to go around? And have hospitals really gotten a handle on that issue by now? I think broadly speaking, most hospitals have gotten a hold of the, the PPE issue. Where you're seeing problems now is not so much that they're having trouble finding the gloves, the masks, uh, the different equipment. What you're seeing is that hospitals are maybe trying to hoard it to a certain extent. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? They've gone through the worst case scenario of what happens when you don't have enough and you're telling people to take a one-time use N95 mask and keep it for for a week on end. Right. So they're, they're trying to stockpile things a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, and those kind of things though, when you talk about the PPE and, and having issues there, that is one of the things that really contributes to, you know, your, your staff feeling safe and feeling valued and feeling protected. And when you have issues with supplies like that, it is going to translate into retention issues as well for for a hospital or for um, other healthcare facilities. You talked about the pipeline issue, uh, you know, the supply of new nurses coming through at the top of our conversation. And some colleges are now trying to recruit more students into their nursing studies programs, but it takes time to train up new nurses. So what are hospitals trying to do in the meantime to backfill some of those positions? There, There's a number of strategies, you know, they are Hiring travel nurses, which kind of becomes an arms race and and a, a compensation race to see you know how many travel nurses you can you can get get them to a hospital for three months six months at a time. 
The other thing, you know, we, we've seen where we're trying to take people who maybe aren't in the field and get them back into it. And then, you know, some of the things that have been done uh, that the groundwork has been laid over the last few years as far as having, you know, what's called a uh, compact states, that if you're licensed to practice as a nurse in Florida, you can go to 25, 35 other states and practice nursing there without having to go through their licensing pro- process to get, you know, the ability to, to go to work. Right. So there, there are some short-term supply things that can be done to, to get people back to work. Um, but, you know, until that long-term, you know, getting enough people coming through the pipeline, getting enough people excited to come into nursing, that problem is not going to be fixed with sort of the short-term band-aids that we're, we're seeing right now. Abe Aberai is WMFE's health reporter. Abe, uh, thanks very much for your reporting and thanks for your insights. Appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thanks. Still to come, we talk with two nurses, one with more than 30 years' experience in nursing, the other a new graduate, about the challenges facing the profession. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking in this hour about a nursing shortage. Earlier this week, a group of nurses protested outside Osceola Regional Medical Centre in Kissimmee, calling for more nurses to be hired. But it's a problem that stretches across the country. Nurses were in demand before 2020, and the pandemic made the problem worse. We're going to talk now with two nurses, one a veteran with more than 30 years' experience, the other a new graduate. Well, joining us is Marissa Lee. She's a registered nurse at Osceola Regional Medical Centre in Kissimmee. Marissa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. We're also joined by Chloe Fry. She just graduated from the UCF College of Nursing. Chloe, thank you as well. Thank you for having me. Marissa, I'm going to start with you. The last year and a half has been pretty unusual, and especially for people on the front lines of um, the pandemic. So what's that experience like been for you? It has been, if the word horrible can describe it, it's horrible. Um, for nurses right now, it is such a nursing shortage. Chloe, thank you for choosing to become a nurse. So welcome to our my love, nursing. <laughs> thank you. So, um, it has been a difficult, difficult time. Now, like I said earlier, I've been a nurse for 36 years. So I came up when AIDS was coming out. And I have the ability to compare what happened during that time frame to now, and it is so totally different. How is it different? Well, the fact that I never had to research for equipment, I never had to plead man- management to give me help. Now it's um, it's it's des- desperate times. I'm going to say desperate times because basically. There's a nursing shortage, and you and I say why there's a nursing shortage because they're working us to death, and we nurses, as Chloe knows, we take an oath to do no harm. You know, we take an oath to do the best we can for our patient. Well, I don't feel I'm doing that. I feel that I'm being obligated to take shortcuts, to not, you know, not provide that care that that patient needs, which may be just sit there and listen to them. You know. I am lucky because I'm a labor and delivery nurse. So in some aspects, I am lucky because we have our own OR, so we have equipment. But those other nurses on other floors that are working the med surge who are taking six and seven patients, it is hard. It is almost 
you can't take care of six or seven patients, ill patients, and you want to give it your best. And most of us give it our best, which means we don't get any breaks. We're lucky if, you know, we have time to go to the bathroom, you know. Well, and I'm not trying to scare you, Chloe, because nursing is a beautiful career. And if I had the opportunity to change what I did in my life, I wouldn't change anything about it because I have a love for it. I have a compassion for it. Marissa, take us back to uh, when you were confronting the um, the AIDS crisis as a nurse. Where were you working then? I was in New York. I worked in New York. I worked in a, a very, very small hospital. I don't even know if it's still there. Um, it used to be called Lebanon Hospital. And it was smaller than Osceola. I think we had like maybe 150 beds. And we had a unit for the AIDS patients. And, and we just... We worked, we had, you know, we had the PPEs, we had the gloves, we had the masks, because at that time, we didn't know how AIDS was transmitted. So, you know, we wore what I call the budding suit. We were covered from head to toe. Now, here, when the pandemic came, you know, it was said it was a hoax, okay? People were dying. It couldn't be a hoax. But, you know, no, you know people didn't take it seriously. And then what happened in my hospital you know, we had, a, you know, we had equipment. All of a sudden, everything was gathered and put under lock and key. And you were not, a, you know, if you needed an N95, you had to prove that you had a COVID patient. Because if not, you had a surgical mask. And you, you never know who's admitted that has COVID. For example, we, had, we admitted a patient that was fine in my floor in labor and delivery. Two days later, She's had all the symptoms. So those nurses who took care of her prior to were exposed. Okay. You know, the problem I see is that they put profit over patient. And nursing, we as nurses, we put patients over profit. We're going to do whatever we need to do to provide the care for those patients and make them feel human. Not that they're just a number. Mm. I wanted to just uh, note, too, uh, in the course of our reporting, my colleague Danielle Pryor reached out to HCA Healthcare yesterday, that being Monday of this week, and um, the statement from HCA is, is this. It is our focus to keep our colleagues safe and continue to recruit, train, and promote our clinical teams, specifically the more than 1,100 nurses we employ at Osceola Regional Medical Centre. Our frontline caregivers have shown unwavering commitment throughout the pandemic, and no one takes the health and safety of our caregivers more seriously than we do. I want to add something there. I'm, I'm, you know, they said they take care of our safety. And let me tell you something. That's frustrating for me to hear because if I get exposed, the only way I know is because one of the co-workers has the symptoms that I was exposed. You need to go get your te- yourself tested because at no time will Osceola will say, well, you've been exposed. Let me test you. And then if you're if you're tested and you don't have any symptoms, oh, come to work because you don't have any t- symptoms, but I am positive for COVID. They expect me to come back to work. So let me just argue that point that they take care of their group because they do not. Chloe, this must be a little bit daunting listening to um, the words from a, a veteran nurse, Marissa. She's been nursing for 36 years, clearly still loves the profession, but What's going through your mind? So thinking about what you're going to be embarking on in this career. Um, 
listening to all this, I wish that I could say that it's the first time I've ever heard it. Um, I have heard it from other nursing professionals, whether it's people that I've met along my journey or those that um, I've grown up with my whole entire life. And it's really sad. Um, But I just, you know, I hope that at some point we do kind of reach a resolution and we are the people that are on the front line that are caring for these patients. And without us, they're not going to get better. There's not many people that have the courage, the care, the ability to care and do what we do. And we have to take care of ourselves to be able to take care of others. And from conversations I've had with nurses, not just in the last year and a half, but you know, prior to that, it's a, it's a physically and emotionally demanding job, right? It can really take it out of you. It does take a toll. It does take a toll. And, you know, but you, for me, it's like, you know, because I was going to retire just before the pandemic. And then the pandemic came and I said, I can't do that to my coworkers. And then it just got worse and worse and worse. I'm still hanging in there because I have a dedication to my coworkers and I have a love for my job and I have a love for my patients. So I'm going to be there. But um, it does take, a more, it's moral distress because you feel defeated. You feel defeated because you don't have the ability and you know, you can voice it, but you know, um, we were out there yesterday because we were tired of uh, talking to management and telling them we need this, we need staff. I mean, in the ER, there was uh, one day last week that there were only four nurses and we're a trauma nurse uh, hospital. How do you have four nurses? They're not taking care of the staff. And you know what, Chloe, I don't want to discourage you because I have a love for this. I have a passion. I really do have a passion. And for anybody to go to, into nursing, they have to have a passion. But where were they? Where are they now? I mean, I, I know for sure we lost 50 nurses out of the ER department. Where are the replacements? Where are the, you know, higher travelers, higher people? And I understand it's a pandemic, so that's a shortage. You know, they're saying that we're um, depressed. We're morally depressed because we're banging our head against the wall. Chloe, what branch of nursing are you hoping to get into? Um, So I'm actually going to be working with adults. I have accepted a job. Um, The respective unit that I will be working on is neuroscience step down. So I'm very excited. Um, It's definitely something that's going to be challenging and every day is going to be different. But I'm really looking forward to learning a lot. And you see a lot of different things. So I'm super excited. Before we started recording this, Chloe, um, it, we were just talking about the, the experience of you know, what the pandemic was like for a student. Just talk us through, through uh, what that was like for you because it's a very hands-on job. So learning some of those things must be a bit challenging in the era of Zoom. How did that kind of work for you? Yes, definitely. Um, challenging is a very good word. I think that The biggest thing is adaptability. And to be a nurse, you have to adapt. And we all definitely proved that. For me, it was my last year of college and nursing school, and it was tough. Um, We, starting in the beginning of 2020, everything was going fine. Um, We were in hospitals doing our clinicals. Everything was going great. And we went to spring break, and we never came back. So that was definitely hard because a lot of our learning 
is very hands-on. And for me as a learner, I have to see it in a patient to fully understand it. And that's something that will forever be ingrained in my mind. So like, I will remember whenever I'm on, like in a test, I will remember that patient that I had, what their lab values looked like, everything. And that's what helps me. And you can't, you can't do this job without like being during school, like being in there and talking to patients because the biggest aspect of our job is trying to communicate with our patients and know what they need and what, how they're feeling because they're like the biggest indicator of what's going on. It strikes me too that oftentimes the the nurses are the navigators for the patient, right? I mean, hospitals can be a confusing place. It can be hard to know what's going on as a patient, disorientating. Sometimes the nurse is the person who the patient will see the most in their stay. So it's that human connection which can, which can sort of be make or break for a patient. It is. And it's really important to be your patient's advocate because at the end of the day, you're kind of the last line of defense for them. You have to go to bat for them and be their biggest fan. And you know what they need and you have to convey that to others. So when the pandemic hit, did you kind of have any second thoughts at that point, Chloe? Like, am I embarking on the right career? Should I change majors? Um, No. I mean, I think that when the pandemic hit, it kind of made me realize that I was 100% headed in the right direction that I wanted to be. And I wanted to keep going towards that Um, because just seeing so many people in need and there not being enough people to fulfill like the demand of healthcare. It just kind of proved that there we need those people and we need to keep producing nurses and doctors and everybody in the healthcare profession is so important and we're just running so low on them. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Chloe Fry. She's a recent graduate from the UCF College of Nursing. We're also talking to Marissa Lee. She's a registered nurse at Osceola Regional Medical Center in Kissimmee. Chloe, I wanted to um, give you the opportunity to ask Marissa, um, what what questions do you have for her as, a, as somebody who's who's uh, been in the profession for some years now? I guess, what's your biggest piece of advice that you can give a new nurse? The biggest thing is compassion. There's always that nurse that knows a little bit and take a little bit from everyone. Everybody has an expertise on something. Um, that's going to be your foundation. Find that nurse, find that person that you and her have something in common. And I'm not talking about nursing. Maybe you like um, music, you know, that, you know, find that nurse and she's going to give you a lot of wealth of knowledge. And most nurses will. Most nurses will give you their wealth of knowledge. Like I share mine with others. And, you know, and bounce ideas, you know, don't be intimidated by other nurses, you know, bounce your ideas, to, uh, you know, with, with your other co-workers, because they can give you another perspective, okay, on what, you know, what to do or how to handle the situation. Marissa, you would obviously, I, I guess, be used to kind of guiding beginning nurses or student nurses through the process, right? I mean, and I imagine the pandemic might have put a stop to that over the last year and a half. It really has. We're now seeing uh, nursing students coming back to our hospital, but it stopped them. It stopped the pandemic stopped education completely. It stopped any kind of teaching. Um, but now we're seeing we have nursing students doing the practicum at, at a hospital. So we, you know, we, we're always willing to share information. So don't be scared, Chloe. 
you know, you are going to learn so much from nurses like me, okay? Don't, don't think that, well, maybe this is a dumb question. The dumb question is that question that never asks, okay? So if you don't ask, You'll never know. And guess what? I may learn something from you because you, you know, you just graduated. I mean, you may teach me something that I go, wow, I didn't know that. So never, never, never hesitate to ask a question. Marissa, you were saying earlier that, you know, when the pandemic hit or before the pandemic had struck, you were contemplating um, stepping away from the career, but then out of uh, a sense of loyalty to your colleagues and and commitment to your patients you decided to stick around i wonder too is it the experience of of um interacting with younger nurses does that also kind of keep keep the job fresh for you like seeing the profession through their eyes too that is definite that is so definitely i learn new things from students that i go wow and then i go back and say you know what when i and i say centuries ago when i went to nursing school centuries ago it, it wasn't done that way and i say wow you just taught me how to do it a easier faster way so it's i feel we share knowledge with the new students coming in the new grass coming in you know i want to share my knowledge but i expect you to share your knowledge with me because i'm old and we all need to learn from each other well, let me ask then about you know this this notion of of how do you how do you combat burnout how do you how do you stay positive in the face of some obviously challenging circumstances um, so what is it that that keeps you going? My love of the job and my love of my coworkers that keeps me going. You know there are some days like yesterday was very long day for me because so we work twelve hour shifts and. Um, you know, sometimes you stay over because I, you know, I love to talk to my patients. I love to teach my patients. And sometimes you can't chart at the moment, but I'd rather talk to my patient and hold my patient's hand when there is a tragedy, you know. I And then I'll go back and do my nurse's notes. But what keeps me going, to be honest, is the love of the job. Mm-hmm. Chloe, just reflecting on this conversation and, and also as you as you embark on your career, um, what do you think it is that's going to keep you engaged and, and you know, connected to the career and, and kind of keep you motivated? Um, I think a lot of it is definitely having compassion and, you know, going back to being your, like the biggest advocate for your patient. Because at the end of the day, I think a lot of us, we don't do it for the money. We don't do it for the praise. We do it because we genuinely care about others and we want to be there for them in their worst moments, their best moments, whatever moment they're having, they need that support because not everyone has family or someone that cares for them. And sometimes they're there all alone and you just kind of, you have to be there for them. So at the end of the day, we may be a nurse, but we're always, we're always a person. So I think just realizing that is the biggest thing for me. Chloe, what would your advice be to somebody contemplating a career in nursing or, or you know, just getting started in their studies? Um, it's going to be hard. I, like nobody will lie to you about that. It will be hard, but it is so worth it. Looking back, you know, for me, it was four years ago when I embarked on my journey and it feels like yesterday um, and I don't regret a minute of it. There has been tears. There's been 
massive like amounts of anxiety, but it is so worth it just to know that I'm helping, you know, maybe not hundreds of people, but one person each day. Marissa Lee is a registered nurse at Osceola Regional Medical Center in Kissimmee. We've been speaking with her about the shortage of nurses and the experience of working through the pandemic. Marissa, thank you so much for the work you do and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to speak to the community. And good luck, Chloe, and much success in your career. Thank you. And we're also joined by Chloe Fry. She's a new graduate from the UCF College of Nursing. Chloe, thank you so much as well. Thank you for having me. Still to come, a conversation with VA Secretary Dennis McDonough about the challenges facing the Department of Veterans Affairs. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough visited Orlando last week, touring the VA hospital and meeting with local officials and speaking at a Pride event where he announced the Department of Veterans Affairs would offer gender confirmation surgery. It's estimated about 4,000 veterans will be interested in the surgery and McDonough says it'll take about two years to develop the framework for the new policy to include confirmation surgeries. I spoke with McDonough before his stop at the Pride event. He talked about his goal of getting more veterans and VA staff vaccinated against COVID-19, how the department is addressing the need for frontline medical staff, and what the VA is doing to prevent veteran suicides. Dennis McDonough, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, by all means. Thanks for having me. So you're touring the country to talk about vaccinations, and um, at last count, the VA has vaccinated about 2.7 million veterans, and they're about... 9 million veterans in the system. So where are you in terms of how many you want to get vaccinated? Obviously, you probably want to have them all vaccinated, but realistically, what is the goal? Well, our goal is to just work at this tirelessly until we vaccinate every veteran. Um, What we do know is that we're pushing 3 million. Uh, The number's a little higher now Mm -hmm. uh, than the number you cited. And we also know that our vets, they're very um, um, seasoned consumers of health of health care so many of them may have gotten vaccinated uh in other uh situations not at the not at va Mm -hmm. Uh, so we're going to just continue to make ourselves available get vaccine to them we're constant contact we're sending emails texts making phone calls to all of our veterans to to make sure that uh, we get to them and get them vaccinated in florida i think the the count of veterans is 1.5 million or so and just looking at some of the data from the VA, I think the vaccination number is around 300,000, which is kind of on the low side, I think, if you compare it to the, the national stats. So how do, you, how do you get over that bump? Well, um, first of all, we, you know, the, it's, it's hard to know for sure, but it, we're confident that our vets have gotten vaccinated through other options, uh, not through VA. But nevertheless, the way we get over the hump is we are in constant touch with our vets we've got we've done a couple of unprecedented things in the last uh couple of weeks we've sent a letter from dr stone uh and me to all of our veterans to make sure that they know where uh their act their options are uh in terms of getting vaccine uh and then individual clinicians that is to say nurses and doctors are taking the step of contacting their patients to say, hey, uh, we've not seen you for the vaccine. We'd love to see you in here. Sometimes they get an uh, answer back that says, hey, I've already been vaccinated. Um, sometimes they get questions. What we are finding is that when our 
vets can talk to nurses and doctors to raise their questions. That's the fastest way to get those questions resolved and to get them vaccinated. Do you think the biggest challenge is access or is it vaccine hesitancy? Uh, I think it's uh, probably a range of things. I think uh, I will acknowledge that there is some uh, hesitancy, and we're addressing that, as I say, vet, uh, veteran by veteran, and we'll continue to do that. I think there are some access questions. Uh, the president has talked about this. Uh, the White House COVID coordinator, Jeff Zients, has talked about this. We're moving vaccine to our, our vets to every American. So what that means for us here is we're doing things like going to individual veterans' homes uh, to make sure that we vaccinate them there. Mm -hmm. If they're concerned about something else, that is to say maybe concerned about going out in the context of the pandemic, we'll go to them. And so um, we're going to continue to do that, make the the, uh, vaccine available, make it accessible, underscore to everybody that it's effective, uh, and it's free. There have been some pretty creative ways to try and get the vaccination rate up in various states, like Washington, for example. I think they just launched a vaccine lottery. I mean, could something like that work for Florida, for the veterans here? Well, I th- you know, we're looking at a range of things. We're looking at a range of things ourselves to make sure that uh, we've tested everything we can. So uh, in this region, it's called a VISN, um, which includes Florida, uh, We've seen some really innovative efforts uh, by the leadership to try to see if, for example, access to um, uh, gift cards mm-hmm. might be an uh, an incentive for our vets. Uh, but we're going to try everything, answering questions, uh, being in ta- contact with our veterans, bringing vaccine to our veterans, and even uh, incentivizing it as possible. Uh, we're going to continue to do that. By the way, uh, Matthew, we're going to do that with our employees, too. I want 100% of our employees, 405,000 employees we have in the system. I'd like to see 100% of them vaccinated too. So we're looking at a range of things to make sure that that happens. We're seeing a good uptake on the vaccine among our workforce, but we're not at 100% yet, so we're going to do everything we can. So you're also, uh, I think, tracking about 1,300 active cases of COVID across the VA system, and that's quite a dip from what it was at its peak, right? What does that mean for hospitals and demand on, on services at the VA hospitals? We, we're, uh, we are seeing a dramatic increase in demand for service uh, in our hospitals and in our clinics going back to March. Mm-hmm. We saw record numbers of referrals to community care and record numbers of, in, uh, of uh, care uh, provided in the system in March, not similarly high, although not record numbers in April and May. So that tells me that our vets have confidence in our services. They're looking for our services. They're coming back for our services. Uh, we've been planning for this and we're managing it well. I am worried about each and every one of our employees. So we'll stay on top of that. We don't see a diminution of service as a result of those uh, infections today. And again, this comes back to my real uh, primary uh, goal here for the summer is to make sure that we get our people vaccinated so we can get those services online at 100% plus. Just thinking about that demand too, um, I mean, you've You've talked about this a bit, and and I think you're quoted as telling a Senate Veteran Affairs Committee uh, hearing that you're not sure if the department will have the money it needs to make it through the year. Um, I mean, the department got, what, $19 billion last year and another $17 billion through the American Rescue Plan. So how much do you need 
to to make it through the, the year. Yeah, you're referring to a specific comment I made about uh, whether we had uh, sufficient money in one account. This is the account that covers our care that we refer into the community. We saw a record number of referrals to the community in March and very high numbers in April and again in May. So what we're looking at, our actuaries are looking at, we may need to add some money into that account from other accounts. So we have the money. I think we're, you know, we're looking at something over, uh, you know, it's hard to tell right now, but uh, maybe as much as another billion dollars or so to make sure that we can cover all this care. We're experiencing something that everybody in healthcare right now is experiencing. My guess is maybe you did this. I did this. I didn't go see my dentist during the pandemic. Um, and when I do, I'm confident it might be a little more complicated, maybe a slightly more expensive uh, visit. Um, and I'm sure, uh, you know, uh, the cleaning, for example, is going to be really important. Uh, 40% of people in America deferred health care during the pandemic. That means that we might, we're going to have increased demands on our system uh, as people come back, that's going to lead to increased costs. Uh, so the president's made sure that we have that that funding. Congress, on a bipartisan basis, is giving us that funding, and I feel good that we'll meet those targets. So just to clarify, when you say care in the community, are you referring to um, veterans who are treated outside of the VA hospital system? That's correct. So we, we provide care in two ways. Here directly in the VA system, it's the biggest healthcare system in the country, integrated healthcare system with every service a vet could need from, uh, you know, uh, um, primary care all the way through to uh, uh, specialties. And we see here in Orlando uh, amazing performance on our specialties. We also provide, that's the first big basket. Uh, the second kind of care we provide is if a vet has to wait a particular period or it has to drive a particular length, we are also um, uh, authorized by Congress to uh, fund that veteran getting care in the community from a private provider. Mm-hmm. We think at the end of the day that our vets who stay in our care do better. That's what the data suggests. Um, so we're trying to make a case to keep our vets in our system or bring our vets back into our system. We do that by continuing to make sure that we meet really rigorous standards for quality and we meet really rigorous standards for timeliness, and that's what we'll continue to do. Is that a change of tack? Because I, I feel like the previous administration at least was quite interested in the idea of trying to um, you know, speed up the pace of care and partly do that by, by giving veterans more access or better access to care in the community outside of the system. Yeah, you know, it's hard for me to to characterize the last administration's uh, posture on this. Uh, Our posture is as follows, which is this is the best system, the most comprehensive integrated health system in the United States. It is particularly good at providing care to veterans. We understand veterans. We understand the challenges veterans face. We understand since so many of our personnel are veterans themselves, the challenges that veterans are going through. And so we're going to make sure that we keep uh, veterans in our care. And that requires us, by the way, to ensure rigorous standards of excellence, but also make sure that we uh, get veterans in in a timely way so they don't have to wait. And so that's going to be a challenge to us, and we'll continue to meet that challenge, I'm confident. Last year, there was quite a bit of reporting on, um, I guess, challenges the VA was facing. For example, shortages of staffing and equipment. ProPublica uh, did some reporting around that. There was also 
um, reporting around problems in the supply chain, tracking equipment and reports of the VA turning contract workers to fill some of the gaps. Um, what's your strategy going forward to make sure you have enough doctors and nurses and other frontline staff and, and also to make sure that the staff you do have aren't burning out? Yeah, well, uh, one, we're working really hard to keep the excellent staff we have. Uh, retention is a major priority of mine. I've been talking uh, with uh, all the teammates here uh, on the facility today to urge them to stay with us to make sure that we're investing in their self-care so that they're, uh, you know, as we like to say, filled up in a position to give best care to our vets. So let's make sure we're focusing on self-care and then in a position to give the excellent uh, high-quality care we give to vets. The second is we are aggressively um, recruiting. And we've added a lot of uh, experts, uh, clinicians, doctors, nurses over the course of the last year. We'll continue that, and we're going to need it because of this. I mentioned earlier, Matthew, the fact that we are seeing a dramatic increase in demand for care. The care that comes to us is complex care. Um, and so we're gonna, we've had success in bringing uh, experts in, uh, and we'll continue that. The principal reason they come here is the mission is an unbelievable mission to be able to invest in care for those who have cared for us, put everything on the line for us, is a mission unlike anything else in medicine, unlike anything else in public service. And that's uh, our principal, um, uh, the principal attribute, the principal uh, recruiting uh, value that we have. And then the third thing I'll say is, yeah, it's hard. It's hard because there's demand for healthcare experts across the healthcare system, mental health care experts, oncologists, uh, surgeons, um, neurosurgeons. Uh, we are competitive in all those places. We'll continue to invest in them, and then we'll offer something that nobody else offers, which is uh, the opportunity to provide world-class care in a world-class system for the greatest heroes in America, our veterans. I think probably one of the, the the incentives for for doctors nurses other frontline staff looking at the VA is the the benefits right I mean you've you've got a bit of a some leverage there uh, but in terms of, of salary and the like I mean are you are you at a disadvantage I mean talking about the, the demand for health care experts across the field because it is competitive right I mean hospitals are recruiting and they they can often offer some you know pretty pretty attractive salary packages like as part of the funding you're asking for, is there something extra in there for, for salary and that sort of thing? Congress has given us important uh, authorities over the course of the last couple of years uh, to uh, give some salary enhancements or we have really important programs, for example, for uh, debt reduction, uh, for um, med school costs or for nursing school costs or for you know graduate school expert uh, de- expertise development costs. Uh, so... I feel really competitive as it relates to issues of salary. But here's where we are extraordinarily competitive. We are extraordinarily competitive on the training, education, and research opportunities at VA. We have more uh, research relationships with the cutting-edge university labs in the country than anybody else. We have 
unbelievable education opportunities. Uh, and that's why, for example, you can't open a newspaper today, Matthew, and not see a story about VA research really le- leading the way on our understanding of major healthcare topics. One very much on everybody's mind is what is the impact of long COVID mm-hmm. on those people who have been infected? Take a look at those stories, and you'll see that it is a healthcare. It is uh, VA records managed by a healthcare team in St. Louis uh, by our Dr. L. Ollie, who is doing unbelievable, cutting-edge research, explaining to the country what COVID and long COVID means for all of us, not just for vets. That's something no other um, healthcare system offers our our clinicians. Uh, it's a really useful and important recruiting tool and we'll use those and all of them including again the most important one which is you get to work here providing care to those who have laid everything on the line for us our heroes our veterans and that's a uh, a huge recruiting advantage Uh, secretary mcdonough one of the big challenges facing veterans is the issue of veteran suicide and if you look at the report released last november the veteran suicide prevention report um and of course it, it tackles data from 2005 to 2018 so there's a bit of a lag but it noted that suicide rates among veterans were higher and rose faster than those among non-veteran U.S. adults. Um, So what is your approach to tackling that issue and trying to bring down the rate of suicide among veterans? We have a uh, national suicide prevention strategy that was uh, worked through uh, very aggressively published in 2018 that draws on the best experts, the best ex, uh, the best data. Uh, we had we recognized kind of three fundamental tenets. One, suicide first and foremost is preventable. Two, uh, suicide prevention requires all of us, not just docs, but all of us. And three, uh, suicide prevention requires a comprehensive whole health um, set of. Uh, interventions. We are uniquely positioned to exercise each of those lines of effort in the VA system. And we're very proud of our work because what we know now from data is that veterans in our care do better. It's not at zero yet, uh, but we're doing, veterans in our care do better. And we will continue working that until everybody in our care is at zero. Then and an additional challenge, though, is veterans not in our care. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, a major priority for us at VA, a major priority for Congress and for the president. Congress has given us additional authorities late last year in a bill called, uh, in a law called the Scott Hannon Act, where they're now allowing us to make grants into communities where community based providers, who know their veterans best, they know their neighbors best, and are most innovative at reaching them with new pri- uh, with new practices, uh, we can make grants into those communities. So we're in the process of developing those grants. They'll hit the street for people to compete for those grants uh, early next spring, and then we'll be awarding those grants late next year. That's a, just a really important cutting-edge effort that many senators, Senator Bozeman from Arkansas, Senator Tester from uh, from Montana, Senator Moran from Kansas have given developed the, uh, um, a series of members of uh, Congress from the House have given us those authorities uh, 
cutting-edge new authorities, we'll use those uh, to make sure we're getting vets not in our care into care. There's one more question I want to ask, and this is about a working group set up to find um, solutions to how sexual misconduct cases are handled at the VA, and that was after a survey done in 2018 which found that one in four female veterans reported harassment from fellow veterans during visits to the VA healthcare. So just tell me what the game plan is going forward to make sure that statistic is, is kind of, I guess, wound back somehow. Well, when I leave here, one of the things I'm going to do, Matthew, is I'm going to go to our uh, women's uh, health clinic here at our, in Orlando, which is a clinic that kind of manifests many of the best practices. Uh, first and foremost, it uh, is a standalone facility where women can uh, go get the treatment uh, and access to expertise that they're right to expect. Women are our fastest growing um, cohort of veterans in this country. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's about 160,000 women vets here in Florida. Uh, we want to make sure that we're giving them the care that they're uh, right to expect, but as importantly, giving it to them in an environment that uh, is in, is uh, hospitable to them, is inviting to them, and is in a situation where they are not uh, being harassed or threatened. So we see here in Orlando those best practices being implemented, separate um, uh, access points to the clinic, uh, de- uh, gender-specific care offered in the clinic, uh, women's health care coordinators available for our women vets, uh, so these are all things founded uh, out of that task force, founded on our best practices. Um, this is why uh, President Biden has asked for a significant increase uh, in funding for uh, women veterans treatment uh, and uh, technology investments uh, and personnel investments in next year's budget. Uh, with those resources and with the, these best practices, we'll get those numbers to where they should be, which is a VA where every veteran, women veterans, veterans of color, LGBTQ veterans, feel not only welcomed and safe, but know that they can get the care that they're right to expect in a world-class facility. Uh, We're not there yet, but we're going to get there, and this is what we owe our vets after everything they've given to us. Well, Secretary Dennis McDonough, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate you. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from our intern Brittany Caldwell and WMFE's Abe Abariah and Danielle Pryor. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived content on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening.